Good evening, and thanks for coming. <coughs> this week um, is, before we begin the class, let me just announce a dedication. Tonight's dedication was by Mordechai Freeman, Freeman. Our dear friend Mordechai Freeman dedicated the class. This is in honor for Rafua Shalema for his mother, Rus Aliyah Basara. May she have a total and complete Rafua amongst all the other ill of the Jewish people, a complete Rafua very, very quickly. Another dedication today was by Rabbi Moshe Bezhakovsky. Um, may this uh, bring a lot of bracha to you and your family for a Chakasha Vesameach and only, only good and mazel and bracha and only, only happiness. Um, I just want to announce as a reminder for all those listening to the class that um, we are in the midst of completing a very, very special Sefer Torah. I mentioned it already on a few weeks ago, uh, but um, we're in the midst of completing this very special Torah. We're going to be bringing it through an amazing journey through the, through the, uh, and bringing it to the Tzadikim. And the Sefer Torah is written in honor of the Baal Shem Tov. Um, following the path of the Baal Shem Tov, that writing a Sefer Torah can bring a lot of miracles. Uh, I have no doubt that the Sefer Torah is bringing and will continue to bring miracles to people in their lives. It would be really, really great if anybody wants to buy a letter, a word, a pasuk, a paragraph in the Torah. They're available. Go to mayon.com. Also, um, so that's uh, that, and that we're running out of time. So, if you'd like to do that, that should be done quickly. So, you go to myon.com and you'll find the link to uh, be part of this amazing, amazing Torah. And you can do it to bring a Rafua Shalema for someone who's ill, for a merit of someone, um, and that's that, that's uh, or anybody that needs any miracle in their life. I'm sure um, this, the Baal Shem Tov was a man of miracles, and being that this Torah is in his honor, and there have been indications from story that I mentioned then that the Baal Shem Tov's holy soul has accepted this gift that we're writing in his honor. So I'm sure he has blessed it and will continue to bless it, and uh, this can bring, be very, very special. Okay, um, next week is Pesach. This week is Parshas Mitzorah. Um, we always discuss the Parsha. We are going to have a class next week, Be'ezus Hashem, Monday night. This week, Thursday, there will not be a class. I'm out of town. Uh, last, next week, Monday night, we will have a class. However, um, and we will discuss Pesach. But I would like to dedicate this class also to talk about Pesach. But I'd like to talk about next week's class, we're going to talk about Pesach. This week's class, we're talking about the preparation for Pesach. Because there is, uh, this is the time when people are preparing for Pesach. And I think it's very important for people to have the right attitude and the right mindset in that preparation because we can do it right or we can do it wrong. And it's important to, to, to have an understanding and an appreciation of what we're doing. And with Hashem's help, hopefully we'll shed some insight into the awesomeness of the preparing for Pesach. Now, um, the, and let's see if we can connect it. Now, there is a connection there is a connection to this week's parsha, Parshas Mitzorah. I just don't know if time will allow us to make that connection. Um, knowing myself, I would probably guess that we will not reach that within the time limit, but who knows? Maybe with Hashem's help, we'll have 
um, a speedy journey through the class, and uh, we will be able to make that connection. In any case, Pesach preparation for many people, and I'll tell you where I was inspired to speak about this, because yesterday in the morning, uh, when I walked into shul, someone asked me, um, maybe I can speak about how uh, to take the stress out and the anxiety of Pesach preparation. Um, Everybody knows that this is a very, very, it's not the easiest of holidays, not the easiest of yomtis to prepare for. We have to rid the home of all of chametz. We have to do a thorough cleansing of our homes. Uh, look in every nook and cranny. Uh, clean out every crumb of possible chametz. And then there's the whole makeover of a home for Pesach. And, getting, and being so careful with the foods that we eat that we shouldn't, God forbid, even eat one crumb of a crumb. Because we know that chametz is prohibited even just a tiny, tiny bit. All the leniencies that we have all year long with non-kosher food, that a little bit falls into a pot, it's okay because it's canceled. Of course, you have to consult the rabbi when it's canceled and what we're and when. But those leniencies are not in regards to chametz on Pesach. Before Pesach, yeah, but on Pesach itself, if there's any bit, even the tiniest, tiniest, tiny trace of chametz, that too is forbidden to eat and with a, is a very severe prohibition. And we know that it does extreme damage to the soul when we eat chametz chas v'shalem. And being careful on, in, in even the minute chametz, and we shouldn't have it in our possession or eat it, brings incredible blessings in our life. So therefore, the pre-preparation, the pre-Pesach prep, causes in many homes and to many people lots of anxiety, which can bring about a very sense of instead of the holiday spirit, which can leave a home with a lot of, a lot of, a lot of um, anger, wrath, tempers can flare. There's a lot going on. Everybody's on edge. And it's not necessarily a very good preparation for the holiday. So it's important for one who has the right attitude to the Pesach cleaning. So I'd like to talk about that today. In general, uh, as an introduction, I read this fabulous story just a few days ago. And um, I think you're the really... Um, this is, this is a really uh, an eye-opener in understanding the way things are viewed, of, viewed from above and the attitudes we need to have to general to observance. The Baal Shem Tov was a highly, highly, highly spiritual, sensitive human being. Uh, I'm sure we all can attest to the idea that the Baal Shem Tov is the man of the spirit, the ultimate neshama. A soul from the highest, from the deepest, from the highest, highest places. His love for God is indescribable. His love, his fervor, his excitement. But as his love for God was so intense and so powerful, to the point that he was constantly in a state where his soul was almost departing the body and needed to hold himself back with uh, most um, difficult... It was, it was excruciatingly difficult for him to keep his soul in his body. That's how tense his love for Hashem was, especially when he prayed. But as his love for God was so intense, it was also matched by his fear and his awe of Hashem. He had this deepest awe of God and fear of Hashem. He trembled before God like a leaf trembling and, and fluttering in the wind. The Baal Shem Tov understood what it means to violate a commandment. And the, and, the, and the heart and how serious it is. So when it would come Shabbos, the Baal Shem Tov would become, we can imagine he would have some anxiety every Shabbos. Because Shabbos, keeping Shabbos is not that easy. And there are so many laws 
And there are so many sub-laws of the sages in which they've forbid this, because maybe if you do this, it'll come to something else. And if someone wants to meticulously keep Shabbos, it's very difficult. And the Baal Shem Tov was a huge scholar, and he knew all the laws of Shabbos perfectly. So there was no question in lack of knowledge. The question, however, was that um, just the movement of the body, especially when you're not paying attention, you could end up moving something that is muktza that's not allowed to be moved. Well, if a person walks, you can step on uh, creatures and kill them, and that's a problem uh, on Shabbos. And the various different things, which it's very hard to be very, very careful. Especially for a person of the Baal Shem Tov, whose mind was always in a state of dveikus to God. So when he was in a state of deep dveikus, he wasn't so aware of his physical movements. So as a result of that, he was, he was, it, 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 when Shabbos would come, he would get uncomfortable because he was afraid that could be chas v'shalem, he's violating Shabbos. So uh, one time, he had this incredible teacher, um, a heavenly teacher that came to learn with him. And his name was Achia Hashilaini. Achia Hashilaini was a Jew who left, one of the Jews who went out of Egypt. He was one of the Jews who went out of Egypt when the Jews went out of Egypt. He witnessed the splitting of the sea and all the ten plagues. He knew Moshe Rabbeinu's father, Amram. He was there by the splitting of the sea. He stood by Har Sinai and was there when the Jews built the Mishkan, when the Jews came into the land of Israel. He lived a very long life. And then he was in King David's Beisden. King David had a Beisden, had a, had a, had a, had a court, and, a, uh, and he was one of the judges in King David. He was a student of David HaMelech. By that time, he was a couple of hundred years old. Anyways, when he passed away, and he was the teacher of Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Anavi. Eliyahu Anavi, who comes to us every Pesach. Initially, when the great soul of the Baal Shem Tov came to this world, and God knew that he has to prepare the neshama that is going to educate the Jewish people and prepare them for the coming of Mashiach, Hashem sent the best teachers to the Baal Shem Tov. Initially, he studied with Eliyahu Anavi, appeared to him many times. But then he kind of was upgraded. And he received the teacher called Achia Shiloini, who was the teacher of Eliyahu Anavi, who would come and study with the Baal Shem Tov. Daily they learned. Anyways, and he taught them all the deepest secrets of the Torah. The hidden, the, the, the highest, highest secrets. And this is a very common knowledge amongst Hasidim that the Baal Shem Tov studied, and Baal Shem Tov writes it in many of his writings, that he studied with the great Achia Hashiloini. Anyways, the Baal Shem Tov asked Achia Hashiloini, please... I want to see the place in Gan Eden, the place in paradise, for the people who keep Shabbos in the highest and best way. Those who have the best observance of Shabbos, I'd like to see their place in, in Gan Eden, in, in the afterlife. So Achia Shilani said, okay, I'll take you there. So together with the Baal Shem Tov, they made Aliyah Saneshama, the two of them. Aliyah Saneshama meant an ascent of a soul, and the Baal Shem Tov would do this all the time. And he would go up and soar into the higher worlds, into the higher realms. His soul would kind of depart the body and go into the higher realms. So this is what the Baal Shem Tov did. And he started, and together they went in, so to speak, into this elevator, and they hit the penthouse. Because they went all the way, all the way to the top. And they were soaring through the worlds and worlds of lights, of ecstasy. And they reached this very, very, very brilliant place in Gan Eden. And it's described, of course, in physical terms because you understand that we're dealing with ultimate abstraction of abstraction, but so that we shall have, just like the sages describe all the experience of the afterlife with, in, in physical terms. So it describes that they came into this magnificent palace 
and the light was blinding, and the and the sweetness and the the whole the whole experience was the ecstasy and the bliss was un, almost unbearable. And in the midst of this all, they saw a brilliant two thrones in the middle of a room. And in the two thrones, and stones are made of gold and diamonds. And again, let's understand this is all a physical description of metaphysical concept of what gold and diamonds mean in these high supernal worlds and laden with the most finest embroidery of cushions and the like on these thrones. And, the, and there were two thrones. So the Baal Shem Tev asked his teacher, for whom are these two thrones? So his teacher said, one of them is for you, my son. If you act in a wise way, this is your throne. The other one is for your partner. Who, who keeps Shabbos in the best way possible. Okay, so the Baal Shem Tev was wild. And the Baal Shem Tev asked Eliyahu Hanavi, I mean, Ashiloni, can you tell me who, my, who this other fellow is? If he's going to be kind of my buddy in Gan Eden, I'd like to know who this other fellow is that keeps Shabbos in the most beautiful, highest possible observance. So Achiyah said, um, and he told him the name of this individual. Baal Shem Tev didn't know who he is. So he says, how can I meet this person? So he says, you know, I've, I've shown you already how to hop into your wagon and go on trips. Do, a, do, do, do that again. So the Baal Shem Tev returns down to earth and goes into his wagon. And Nachi HaShiloini had already taught the Baal Shem Tev, as it is well known of all the stories of the Holy Baal Shem Tev, how his wagon would travel to places. And then had a, it was the first car, it was the first driveless wagon. They're going to see the world is catching up, Bezrat Hashem, soon, in which you're going to have cars that will drive places without anybody um, needing to drive it. The Baal Shem Tov did that already 300 years ago, so it's nothing new. His wagon and the horses would go wherever they would need to go. The coachman would fall asleep, and the wagon would go where it needs to go. And in addition to that, the great miracle everybody knows of the Baal Shem Tov was that his, he knew the name which causes Kfitzes Aderech. Kfitzes Aderech is that you can speed up your journey and what should, should take a certain amount of time is like going with a Concorde jet and it's, uh, it's much shorter. So the Baal Shem Tov uttered whatever name it was and I think this was still before the Baal Shem Tov had, was known and revealed and before he had students and he might have not even had a coachman yet. He was a poor, simple Jew or at least looked like a simple Jew and um, he set off the wagon and the horses are galloping and they're passing of the first First, they're trot, first they're, they, the horses leave and they're pulling the wagon, then they go into a trot and then they start running. And before that, and then and, and, and moments later, they're flying. And he's going over hills and valleys and lakes and forests and rivers and cities and an enormous speed. But even with this speed, it still took a few days for the journey for him to get to where he, he came, to, came to a remote city very distant, far, where he didn't know the language or anything. And he arrived at a house. Stopped in front of a house, the Baal Shem Tov got out, and it looked like, not, doesn't see any Jews, it's not a Jewish neighborhood at all. He knocks on the door, and the person opens up the door, and he invites the Holy, and, and he looks at the book. And the person who came out didn't look Jewish at all. Somehow, I don't know exactly, the language barrier, but the Baal Shem Tov asked if he can stay at this home. The Baal Shem Tov had a very, very, very sweet and kind and beautiful face. And I guess the person looked at this beautiful human being and said, of course you can be my guest. So he invited him into his house. 
And the Baal Shem Tov now was puzzled because this person didn't look Jewish. He didn't wear a kippah. He didn't have. He, he didn't look. There's any trace of Judaism to him. So the Baal Shem Tov is thinking maybe he's a hidden tzaddik who's hiding so well that he can't even see that he's Jewish. Anyway, the Baal Shem Tov is observing this fellow and is expecting to see certain kabbalistic uh, conduct or so and so. There is nothing. Not only that, the person eats and he doesn't wash his hands before he eats. He doesn't make a blessing, and to make matters worse, he's eating non-kosher food. And the Baal Shem Tov is terrified because he can't believe that this person is going to be his partner in Gan Eden for the person in the world to come, for the person who keeps the highest Shabbos. So he says, but let's wait and see. So the Baal Shem Tov tries to, at night, he makes believe he's pretending he's sleeping, he thinks that at night the person is going to remove his mask and show his true colors. So he's peeking out from under his blanket and trying to see what the guy is doing, but the person is snoring the entire night, and there is no, there isn't any, any, anything unusual, but for a peasanty person. The day passes. The next day, he observes and is observing. He's trying to hardest. Nothing happens. Shemta says, "Listen here. I came here to watch this guy keep Shabbos. So I'm going to stay for Shabbos." Uh, the guy let him stay for Shabbos, which Saturday, I guess, call it Shabbos. And the Baal Shem Tov is there and watching and watching and watching. It was the most miserable Shabbos for the Baal Shem Tov. Here there is, there is no L'chun Aranana, there's no Kabbalah Shabbos, there's no L'chun Daidi, which you sing the greeting of the Shabbos. There's no Shabbos table with Kiddush and Zmiris and all the, all the, the Baal Shem Tov Shabbos, which, which he would have, was like a so, so spiritual, so powerful, so elevated, so godly. And over here, it was dry, and, and but lucky the Baal Shem Tov had brought along with him um, a little bit of uh, some bread rolls, so he was able to make Kiddush on the rolls, and he had jobs. And um, it, again, it, it, it was a very, very disturbed Shabbos. Shabbos afternoon, this fellow invited, he sees that our guests start arriving. He sees the guy prepared a nice meal, and guests start arriving, and more guests, and more guests. Suddenly the room fills up, and it becomes a very loud party. And the Bolshemta was very uncomfortable. It's men and women, they're all mingling together, and they're laughing, and the, and the host is entertaining, and everybody's having a happy time. Everybody's having a wonderful time at the party, but there's nothing Jewish or remotely holy about what he was observing. The day is over, and the Balshemtov is very frustrated, but he knows he didn't make a mistake, because if this is where the wagon stopped, this is where it's supposed to be. So after Shabbos, he's ready to leave, he just comes over to the host, and he says, please, just tell me one thing. Can you please, please explain to me why you, you know, he, he said, no, he said, tell me what's this party that you made today? Why did you make the party? So he said, what was the occasion? What was the occasion? What was the occasion for this special party? So the man says to the Baal Shem Tov, oh, no, it's no special occasion. I do this every Saturday. Every Saturday I make a party like this. So the Baal Shem Tov said to him, a party like this every Shabbos, every Saturday, why? So he says, because when I was a little boy, I, I was born a Jew, and my parents died when I was very young. Maybe I was two, three years old. And then I was taken in by non-Jewish people, and I grew up as a Gentile. I don't have any recollection of my, of my life as, as my, of my parents and as my Jewish home. But I do remember one thing, that every, the happiest day of the week was the Shabbos. And my parents made this party in the afternoon. We had lunch, and we had guests over, and there was singing, 
And everybody was in a festive mood. So I decided that if I can't keep anything in my Judaism, at least I can do one thing as a Jew, and that is follow what my parents did, and make a party for, and make people happy on every Saturday. And that's my party, and this I've been doing this for years. We have a block party every Saturday at my place, and everybody loves it. So the Baal Shem Tov is looking, and he says, wow, there is something so pure, something so innocent, something so real and deep about this beautiful Jew. But what a shame. He wants to keep Shabbos. And he's not keeping Shabbos correctly at all. He's violating the Shabbos. In one Shabbos, he's, 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 he's violating so many of the 39 principles of work that you now want to do on Shabbos. What a pity for this person. I need to teach him. I need to educate him. And the Baal Shem Tov was ready to start telling this person, you know what, it's very beautiful what you do, but I want to show you and teach you really how to keep Shabbos, because you're really trying to keep Shabbos. And then as the Baal Shem Tov was about to open his mouth, his tongue got stuck to his palate, and, not a word, and a word couldn't come out of his mouth. And the Baal Shem Tov realized that in heaven, they are preventing him from saying anything to this person. Because if this person would start hearing about all the details and the sub-details of how you're supposed to keep Shabbos, he wouldn't be able to handle it. He wasn't born with it. He doesn't know. He's not educated. It would frustrate him so much. And not only would he not gain real Shabbos observance, he would lose his beautiful observance that he had from his innocence of his soul. So the Baal Shem Tov left him alone. And he left. Then he asked Achiyah Shiloini, his teacher and his holy master, and he said, please show me the place in the dungeons of purgatory for the person who keeps Shabbos in the worst possible way. So the, his rebbe, his teacher, Achia, said to him, come with me. And again, they left their body, did this, this aliyah, and this time they went down into the valleys of darkness. And they came to a very dark cave and they went further and lower and lower and lower to an opening. And that was the entrance of purgatory of Gehenna. And they went down lower and lower and lower. And it was just really, really horrific. It was so frightening and scary. And Finally, they came to this extremely dark place. And it was a putrid, horrific smell. And he takes them in room and room. And he has a little light, so to speak, to see in the dark. And they come into this real, real dark, smelly, dingy, horrible place. And he sees two thrones. And the thrones are made out of dark black. And there, there, and the smoke coming out of them, and it's it smells from sulfur. It's disgusting. And he asks his teacher, "Who are these two thrones for?" So he says, "My son, one of them, one of them is for you, and one of if you act unwisely, if you keep Shabbos in an unwise way, and for your and for your partner who keeps Shabbos in the same manner." So the Baal Shem Tov said. Who is the person who keeps Shabbos like that? So he gave him, Achiyah told him the name of this individual. The Baal Shem Tov says, how can I see him? He said, do the same thing you did. Go on your wagon. And the wagon will take you to this to visit this individual. So the Baal Shem Tov comes back to earth, back to his body, hops onto his wagon. And this time it wasn't a far journey to a remote city. The wagon just drove up to a town not far from Mezhebuzh, not too far from where the Baal Shem Tov was. And it's a big 
quite a nice sized town, and it's Erev Shabbos, and people are busy preparing, and this one is running to the mikvah, and this one is bringing, and the, the food, and you can smell the Shabbos food, it's delicious. It, it, it feels so Shabbos-thick, like the Baal was used to, not like that Shabbos that he spent in this, in this Gentile environment. It, the wagon stops in front of the house, the Baal comes out, and he asks, who lives here? And they tell him, this is the rabbi of the town. So the Baal goes in, knocks on the door, and the rabbi was a very, they told him he's a very, very big scholar. He doesn't like to be bothered. So the Balshemtiv comes in, the guy's sitting with all of his books and he's learning. And the Balshemtiv taps him on the shoulder and he's very annoyed, doesn't want to listen to him. The Balshemtiv taps him again two or three times. Finally, he lifts his head up from the book and he says, What, what do you want? It's kind of a cold. And the Balshemtiv says, I'd like, I don't have where to be for Shabbos. Shabbos is coming soon. I'd like to stay by you for Shabbos. So he quickly doesn't want to speak to him because he's always he's learning all the time. He shows his servant to give the Balshemtiv a room to stay and put him up. So the Baal goes to that room, fine. Comes Shabbos and Shabbos begins, and the Baal wants to go to shul or something. This very, 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 very great rabbi, who was very, very knowledgeable in the laws of Shabbos, had such fear of God that he was terrified to move any of his limbs on Shabbos. So what he would do is he would sit like this the whole Shabbos with his hands on his chest, and he would sit and he wouldn't put, he wouldn't move any, any his hands he wouldn't move because he was terrified that he would move something that you're not allowed to move. He wouldn't move his feet because he was terrified that he would step on an ant or something and kill this thing which you're not allowed to do on Shabbos. And this is the way he would see sat the full 24 hours. At the end of Shabbos, the Baal wanted to share with this person what he had seen in heaven about how meaningful this observance is to God and how much Hashem delights in this service, that this is where his Shabbos is going to lead him. And when he tried to open his mouth, again his tongue got stuck to his palate and he couldn't say anything. And he realized what the sages say, that just like it is a mitzvah to say that which is going to be heard, it's, not, it's a mitzvah to refrain from saying if the person is not going to listen. This person was so entrenched in his observance of Shabbos, that that's what God wants, that you should lock yourself up in a, in, a paral, in, in a paralyzed state and not move, and that's keeping Shabbos. It is very, very clear from this above-mentioned story that Judaism is supposed to be joyful, it is supposed to be a state of celeb- celebration, of connection to God, and if the preparations for Pesach lead a person to extreme anxiety, to stress, to be angry at the family, and things like that, and everybody's nervous and angry, it's not much of Judaism. That's not what God wants. Hashem wants a joyful, a joyful Pesach. He wants a joyful experience. And even the pre-Pesach work of getting rid of the chametz should be done with great enthusiasm, joy, and happiness. Now again, I just want to say one very important thing. I'm not trying to address over here if someone has a real anxiety problem and that's not a religious that's not a religious issue. It's just that of course if one has a problem with anxiety then Pesach or things like this can be a trigger for the anxiety. And if that's the case um, again that's not a religious element. But we're talking about people who generally are calm and can live in a state of normalcy. It's just that before Pesach comes they become crazy. That needs to change. That is not good. And here we try to clarify a different approach and one that can help ease a person into the right mindset. So, good. So we know that God does not desire the, 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 um, the anxiety before Pesach. Hashem does not want the stress. 
definitely does not want a, a angry mother or an angry father in a home. That's not what, 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 is, what is cherished and what God wants from our observance. Question two is, however, we do know how serious chametz is. We do have to work very hard in getting rid of the chametz. So how do we bring ourselves to do it with joy? So the first thing is we need to have a little bit of a better understanding of what we're doing when we're cleaning for chametz. When we get a better understanding of what it is that we're really ridding ourselves from and the world from, then we understand that, first of all, it gives us the insight and the inspiration to do it with joy and with happiness. Number two, we realize that if it's, this thing is, is getting us um, strung up and it's getting us nervous and tense, um, actually it's counter, it's count, it's totally antithetical to what getting rid of chametz is supposed to be. Getting rid of chametz is supposed to be the exact opposite of this experience of getting, of getting tense and having this anxiety. So the idea is as follows. What is chametz? So on the most basic of levels, we know what the sages, I mean, chametz is leaven, right? Any leavened bread, that's chametz. Which by the way, we need to, people need to know that dust is not chametz. It's only when there is crumbs from from, from something that is, uh, that is uh, leavened, uh, cookies, crackers, things like that, bread and the like, Cheerios and the like. Um, but things that are um, just uh, dust is not hummus, that's one thing. But in addition to that, there is a deeper, there is a body and a soul to everything. So the body of hummus is the hummus, the leavened bread. The um, soul of hummus is what the sages tell us that yeast is the Yetzirah is compared to yeast. The evil inclination is the chametz. And there's a, the Gemara in Masechtas Brachas where the Gemara says, um, I don't remember in what context it is, but the Gemara says that the Jewish, the Jewish people say to God, we want to do your will. You know, Ritzayneinu, it is our desire, Lasseis Ritzaynecha. It is our desire. Every single man and woman, every single Jew wants to do what God wants of them. Mima Akiv, who gets in the way? Soor Shabi'isa, the yeast that's in the dough. From this statement of the sages, we see clearly that they compare to the Yetzahara, the evil inclination, is compared to yeast in the dough. So it's yeast. Yeast is forbidden on Pesach. Chametz, two things are forbidden chametz and yeast, which is like the source of chametz. Now, another thing we find in the, in the, in the even in scripture, even in in the language of, of the Pasuk, we find in Tehillim an expression of King David where he says, Ki chametz levavi. When my heart becomes leavened, when my heart becomes chametz thick, as a negative, as expression of Yetzahara entering the heart. Or like the sages also say in other places, when they want to describe a person when he was a person who was a tzaddik and then he became wicked, they used the term, kan koidim shehichmitz. Here it's talking about before he became chametzdik, kan la'achar shehichmitz. Here it's after he became chametzdik. So you see clearly, chametz is an indicative and a symbol, is, symbol and symbolizes evil inclination, yetzahara. Now, but more in particularly, why chametz? What is the nature of chametz? Chametz rises. The difference between chametz and matzah, matzah is flat bread. Matzah is bread that was not allowed, given a chance to rise. 
And chametz is inflated bread. The root of all evil inclination, the root of all unholiness is inflated ego. An overly sense of self. When a person has an overly sense of his own, his or her own importance and his or her own accomplishments, and I'm such a phenomenal human being, that sense, that ego, that pride, um, that is the that is chametz, and that is at the core of yetsahara. That is at the root. That's the nucleus of all yetsahara. We know that when a person, and it's interesting, we know we mentioned earlier that on Pesach that all all, all of other prohibitions are prohibited as a certain measure. How much you're not allowed to eat, let's say, of a non-kosher thing. Biblically, I'm not talking rabbinic. Biblically, there's a certain measure. Usually it's a kezayis. A kezayis means the size of an olive. Chametz, on Pesach, is forbidden b'mashahu. Even a tiny little crumb. And there's no limit. Even the tiniest of the tiniest of the tiniest of it is, is prohidden. Why is that? Why is chametz prohibited? Because the Rambam tells us an interesting thing. Maimonides discusses the temperament of a person and a person's character traits. And Maimonides tells us that in all midos, in all um, temperaments, a person is supposed to choose the middle path. Um, and not to go to any extremes and everything. In terms of when a person is person has a nature of being saving up money or spending. So being extremely extravagant, uh, extravagant and, spelling, and spending all the money you have all the time, that's not good. Being very miserly isn't either good. What is good is being in the middle. Or for example, the Rambam says, being super, super, super calm or being kind of having some, some um, uh, getting upset, not upset, but... Um, would be the right right term for it. Being being uh, reacting to it. So the Ramadan says, for instance, if a person is very very calm and nothing gets to them, nothing ever, that's not too good because usually then they don't fix problems because they neglect everything because everything is okay, nothing. But on the other hand, if a person is mocked and gets angry and gets upset about everything, it's neither good. So the right path is the middle path. The one thing in which Ramadan says that a person has to keep away completely from and not even have one tiny trace is when it comes to arrogance we're supposed to be humble to the utmost extreme humility is required to the utmost extreme and arrogance even a tiny bit of it isn't good the Kabbalists tell us an interesting idea that gaiva arrogance is called avi avos hatuma in the impurity in levels of impurity it's the grandfather of impurity, which means it's the highest, deepest, most contaminating element that a person can have. If a person becomes arrogant, the contamination of their soul is the deepest and the strongest. And this sin of arrogance causes a person to fall into the worst of the worst of the worst. Generally, a person has certain restrictions. And certain limitations. There is that which I, I know. If I have a temptation, if I have a situation, I might succumb to this temptation or that temptation. But then there are certain barriers which I know I will never cross. But there is an exception. 
If God forbid a person allows arrogance to fill his heart, as a consequence of that arrogance, they can take such a tumbling fall to fall down to the depth, the depth of darkness, the depth of sin, which is completely beyond this person's character as a result of arrogance. That's why arrogance is the most dangerous thing. If a person feels their heart swelling with pride about something, you have to set every alarm and fight it tooth and nail. God forbid not allow that to happen because the consequences of it are horrific. The Tzemach Tzedek says, why? Why does arrogance lead a person to such a terrible fall? He says, because when a person becomes inflated with his or herself, you're really climbing up to a place way, way, way above where you should be. See, the only one who has a right to pride is God. Because God can take credit for everything. He created the world. Now, even though we know God is the essence, has, is the ultimate of humility, as we say each time, in the place where we find God's greatness, that's where we find God's humility. But at the same time, pride is something that is appropriate and correct to God. Because when you're priding yourself with something, means you take the credit for whatever it is. God ought to take the credit for all, everything because He created all of the world. He created and he, all talent. He created all abilities. He created all beauty. He created all knowledge. He's the source of everything. So He has the right to have the sense of, yes, this is my create. this is what I made. That's why we say in davening, Hagaiva v'hagidula l'chai o'ilamim. Pride and greatness is for the one, the eternal one, the one that lives on forever, only for God. A human being who prides himself with something means that the person is climbing up to sit, God forbid, on God's throne. When a person dares to go to a place where no one should go, to sit down on God's throne, this is somewhere where only God belongs in a place of pride. How can a human being climb up to that place? Since the person is sitting, because he says, oh, he says, ask the ultimate question. A person asks himself, who am I really? I'm a person, I'm a human being. Where do I begin? What's my beginnings? I come from, as the Gemara says, as the Mishnah says in Pirkei Tipa Srucha, a putrid drop. I end up eaten up by a person, where the person thinks, where is he ending up? And they're up under the ground. As the, Gemara, as the Mishnah says, the Makim Rima, place of worms. And what? And every accomplishment and everything you achieve and everything you've done is because God-given talents that God has given you. And God is creating you and making you and everything you have and every empowerment, every element comes from Him. So who is a human being to have pride? If God forbid you take credit, chas with something a person ought not to take credit, that can cause, God forbid, since one is climbing to the greatest heights where they don't belong, so from that very high place, they can fall and plummet to a place that would generally would be impossible for a person of this stature or this level to fall solo. And the example that is given is Haman. Haman, we know, was, had a horrific fall. Here he was the prime minister of all of, of Persia, which really was the ruler of the entire world. A couple of hours later, Haman was in the most was humiliated with the greatest humility. He had to pull 
he had to pull, um, he, he had to parade with Mordechai in the middle of the street, his arch enemy, call out in front of him, so should be done to the man who the king wants. He had a bucket of feces dumped over his head, and then a few, and just an hour or two later, he was publicly hung on a very, very, very tall tree for everybody to see. How did he have such an unbelievable fall from being the most powerful person to just a few hours later having such a terrible fall? The secret was pride. Esther knew that secret, the Gemara says. That's why Esther invited him to the party. You wonder why Esther made two parties and she invited Haman twice? So the Gemara says, because when a wicked person rises and becomes pompous and becomes super arrogant, right, that's when he can fall. So she led him, she lifted him up to the high, she picked him up so high. He thought there's no one above him. And from there he came crashing down. And that's why arrogance is super, super dangerous. Chametz is arrogance. Our work of getting working, cleaning our homes for chametz, is really also a psychological exercise. To cleanse, to purify, to look deep inside our soul. If we find any bit of arrogance, of, of, of self-importance, of feeling, that must be flushed out of our system. But let's go deeper than that. A little deeper than that. Chametz, Pesach by night, we eat matzah. Why are we eating matzah? So we're eating a bread. We're eating bread. But the bread that we're eating is unleavened bread. And God forbid it should be leavened. So we spoke about this in other classes. It was to understand what is the meaning of, to understand a little better, what is the meaning of this arrogance? We're not talking about blatant, just merely blatant arrogance and self-inflation. We're talking even on a much subtler level of ego. Because on Pesach by night we eat matzah. It says in the Zohar, the reason why the Jewish people, the reason why we have a mitzvah to eat matzah on Pesach by night. Because matzah is food for the mind. Bread in general feeds the brain cells. Sages say an interesting thing. A child will not recognize, doesn't have the knowledge and the ability to recognize and know his father or his parents until he tastes the taste of grain. Grain ca- causes certain brain development. Brain, uh, uh, grains have the ability to feed and to, to, to nurture the brain cells and thereby increasing one's um, intelligence, one's mind. That's why we eat matzah on Pesach. Because when the Jewish people went out of Egypt, they didn't know God at all. They were in a deep, deep, dark constriction, in a deep exile, severed and separated from Hashem. Now they needed to return to a connection to God. So God fed them with the food that would open their minds up to divinity. Open their minds up to experience God. That's why we eat bread. That's what we do Pesach by night. The highlight of the Seder is eating bread because through the bread we can eat. But we don't eat bread. We eat matzah bread. We eat unleavened bread. And not, what, what is the reason for that? Because in a bread, if bread is intelligence, if bread is knowledge, let's put it this way, if bread is knowledge, inflated bread means egotistical knowledge, inflated knowledge. Flat bread means flat knowledge. What? Humble knowledge. What's the difference between humble knowledge and 
inflated knowledge. It means like this. Inflated knowledge means you understand something because you understand. You learn, you study, you grasp, you understand. You say, this makes sense. This fits in my mind. It fits and it sits well in my thinking of how I understand the world or I understand. That's, 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 that's knowledge, inflated knowledge. Pesach by night, our knowledge of God is similar to a child. What does the Zohar say? It's a child that gets to know their parent. When a child is just merely one years old, and the child says, Abba, the child says, Daddy, the child says, Tati, whatever. That knowledge is not a sophisticated knowledge. It's not a very intelligent understanding of what parent-child relationship means psychologically, emotionally, biologically, physically. The child doesn't have all that science to the knowledge. He just knows one thing. This is my daddy. And this human being, I am... And even this, he doesn't understand intellectually, but there is this deep bond that he knows that if anything in my life, this is the person I run to. This is my protector. This is the one who takes care of me. This is the one. It's not an information type of a knowledge, but it is information. It's a very simple knowledge. It's knowledge without the ego of the mind. It's just like the child is receiving the... the, the it's, it's, it's like something is illuminating the, the, the mind of the child, the appreciation that this is my dad, this is my, this is my mother, this is my father. Pesach by night, we go back to the beginning. We need to encounter God and we need to know God in the deepest way. With a parent, with, in human relationships, and this is a discussion that we had a few years ago when we talked about matzah, so I'm just, I'm just reviewing it very briefly to connect it to what the subject that we're talking about tonight. In our human relationships, it's okay if we sophisticate our knowledge of our parents or anybody else in any relationship because we could get a grasp of the person we're in a relationship with. When it comes with God, there is a serious problem. God cannot be known at all. As it says, there's no thought that can grasp. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to explore, we're not supposed to understand, we're not supposed to reach for Hashem to try to have a relationship with Him to the degree that our minds are able to understand. But we have to always understand and know that that which we understand of God is only a crumb of 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 of His infinite light. We really don't know anything about Him. But then how do we have a relationship with Him if we don't know anything about Him? And the answer is, we don't have to informationally know God through our mind God makes himself known to our soul. How does God make himself known to your soul? Through faith. In Amuna, God is being visible. He's showing himself to your nisham. You're experiencing God Almighty because God is shining himself into your soul. In your faith, you're like the child that's saying, Daddy. You don't understand who, what, where, away. Just know this is God. And Pesach by night, we experience the deepest revelation. Through what? Through the matzah. So you can't eat a chametz bread because a chametz bread means there's a little bit of you in it. Meaning, I understand, I grasp, it makes sense like this, it makes sense like that. It's not about we understanding, it's a silence. It's just an acceptance. It's just allowing something to come in without us needing to, in, it, to interject with ourselves in it. It's flat, a total state of receiving. That's what it is. It's, it's receiving. That's the matzah. 
So when we're talking about the lack of ego, we don't only mean blatant, despicable ego. We're talking about any bit of self. If there is self, it doesn't allow for God to reveal himself. Because God cannot reveal, the truth of God cannot be revealed in a place, in someone that has self-awareness and self-consciousness. When we're eating the matzo, we lose, we become lost in the light. Repinchas of Karetz, by the way, say, says that the reason why before Pesach we have to clean and scrub and work so hard, he says, because you know what happens when you're scrubbing and you're working so hard? You lose yourself. You lose yourself because you're not, you're so, everybody's so involved in the getting it done and that's not supposed to, it's not supposed to be about I need to have a clean house or I, it's to lose yourself. And when you lose yourself, you become that vessel to receive that light. As long as you're stuck up in your own existence, you can't receive it. And that's hinted to in the matzah itself. It's the bittel. It's the nullification. So, but this is all within ourselves. But when we're getting rid of the chametz, we're also having a cosmic effect. It's not just in ourselves. Preparing ourselves to receive God's light, which is awesome. But it's also a cosmic effect on the whole world. Because each and every one of us, here's a very, very special idea. And understanding the difference between the matzah and the chametz. And what we're chasing, what are we getting rid of. So each and every single Jew is a little piece of the Shekhinah. Because up till now we spoke about our own personal relationship with God as it applies to us as an individual. But there's a much bigger picture. And that is what happens on Pesach by night is that God comes to take each and every one of us out of the exile. As He takes us out of the exile, He takes the Shekhinah out of exile too. And there's a supernal union between God and the Shekhinah. There is a fusion. God illuminates the world. He illuminates the Shekhinah. And as a result of that, He illuminates all the Jewish people. The Shekhinah is a hay. The letter hey. What's the difference between chametz and matzah? They're both the exact same letters. Ches and mem. I'm sorry, mem and tzaddik. They both have a mem and a tzaddik. The difference is between a ches and a hey. Chametz has a ches and matzah has a hey. What's the difference between having a hey or having a ches? So the difference is as follows. It's just a tiny little opening. On the left side of the hey... When you have a hay, you have a little window. When you have a ches, it's closed. What's the difference between it being closed and being open? And the idea is as follows. The shechina, which is the source of our soul, is the vitality, is a divine vitality that pulsates in all of creation. It's the power of God that is illuminated in the world. That's why we the Jewish people, which is also the soul of creation, because God created all of the world for the sake of Israel, for the sake of the Jewish people, for the sake of the mitzvahs we will do, we're all part of the Shekhin. It's the vitality of the divine in the world. We have to make sure that, it's a, that this Shekhin up energy remains open on the left side, remains a hey. When the Shekhin becomes a ches, as we're going to soon see what that means, then she, God forbid, loses all her merit and then she cannot have a union with the higher, with the supernal light from above, the infinite light from above, 
cannot resign. As God cannot illuminate the Shekhinah when the Shekhinah is a Ches and not a He. Let's understand why. So just for one moment, bear with me. It's a little bit of a Kabbalistic concept, but it will make a lot of sense. The Shekhinah is the last of the divine attributes, the power of God that's embedded in the creation. Divine speech, Malchus. We spoke about this many times. Malchus is the, the words of God that illuminate and create the world. Okay. Now, um, the three lines of the hay, the hay is made up of three lines, is because God sustains three worlds. The, all of the sum totality of all of creation, there is a higher world called the world of creation. There's a next world called the Olam Hayatsira, the world of Bria. And then there's a next world called the Olam Hayatsira, the world of formation. And finally, there is Olam Asiya, the world of Asiya, the, the world of completion, the physical, actual world. Now, in the Shekhinah itself, the Shekhinah is receiving, the Shekhinah is speech, the power to speak. But in the speech, there is the nine higher attributes, there are ten sefirot, there are nine higher attributes that descend into a Shekhinah to illuminate the Shekhinah. The three lines that are in the, in the hay, the upper, the roof, represents the three highest, the intellectual parts of the Shekhinah. The Chachma Binadas, the Chabad, Chachma Binadas, wisdom, understanding, and knowledge of the Shekhinah. The right leg represents the three primary emotions, Chesed, kindness, Gevura, seferity, Teferes, and beauty of the Shekhinah. We're not talking about these independent attributes. We're talking about as the Shekhinah receives this vitality from above. Chachma Bin Adas, her wisdom, her intelligence, her emotions. And finally, the last leg, which is on the left side, represents the last three attributes called Netzach Hod Yesod. Victory, Hod, glory, Yesod, bonding of the Shekhinah. It's with, her la- it's with the left leg that the Shekhinah descends into the creation to give life. Because we always know that the power of hashpa, the power to give, the power to transmit energy, is always through the latter. Th- in a human being, your intelligence remains in you. Your essential emotions remain in you. But the power of netzach, which I'm not going to get in right now, is the power of transmission. That's the power that vitalizes. That's the power that is all about connecting to the recipient. So which part of the Shekhinah descends into the world to give life to the creation? The left leg, Netzach Hod Yesod. Now here is very important that that left leg should have a little space. Because if the leg leg is closed up, it's dangerous. What is it dangerous? We see when the Shekhinah gives life to the world, part of what she sustains is forces of darkness. She gives life to forces of negativity, to forces of klipa, to real, real, real dark forces. Because when the klipa sustains, she's not only sustaining good people, she's not only sustaining um, 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 things that are holy and good in the world. Take a look at the world. The world is filled with so much klipa, so much tumma, so much impurity, so much garbage, so much forces, so many bad entities. Such... So the Shekhinah is giving light to it. That's called, let's translate that in Kabbalistic terminology, Yenikas hachitzonim. The chitzonim, the other sides, are deriving energy from the Shekhinah. That's the way it is, the system is. They can kind of plug into the Shekhinah. That's the way it is. It says about the Shekhinah, Ragler, her feet, Yoredes Maves. Her feet go down to a place of death. When she comes to bring the life force into the creation, it can be attacked 
she can be attacked, so to speak, by forces of unholiness that steals, so to speak, the energy from her. And God's vitality that is meant to enliven a beautiful world ends up enlivening, enlivening and giving sustenance to that which is unholy and terrible in the creation. To avoid yanika sachitzainim. To avoid yanika sachitzainim. When the shechina has within herself humility, total humility, to her source, which means she surrenders completely to, she's connected to the what's called the bittel and nullification to her source. She recognizes that her light that she's giving the world is not hers. It's coming from her husband. It's coming from the infinite light. It's coming from God himself. When she, She's like the moon who's reflecting the light of the sun. Then God's light is present in her. Hashem's light is shining in her. When the orange sof, when God's light is shining somewhere, the forces of unholiness are terrified. They cannot gaze at the orange sof. Where the king himself is, the thieves, the robbers run for their life. Because they know that from the king they can't steal from. They can steal from all the side channels, but not from the king itself. And that's the secret of the ches, having a little space. It says in, 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 in Eishas Chayel, it says, Pia Pascha, her mouth she opens up with wisdom. It's talking about the Shekhinah. The mouth that she opens is referring to that little, that little space that the Shekhinah opens up. What's the space? The space is her humility. Chachma is the power of Bittel. Koach Ma, the power of Bittel. When the Shekhinah has Bittel in her left leg, in other words, when her power to give, she realizes it's not her power, but what she's receiving and she's nullified to her source, then there cannot be a hacking. Then she cannot be hacked by the forces of unholiness. They can't steal the energy from her. She is safe. She is secure. God forbid she becomes a ches, which means she loses that chachma, that bittel, that little window of bittel. It becomes that she is the one. The negative things can start deriving energy from her. So you realize that ego doesn't just begin down here below. It travels all the way, all the way up to the source of beginnings. If God forbid the recipient, which is the Shekhinah, is lacking in total bittel to her source, without that, 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 then it causes an imbalance and a complete destruction in creation. What happens then? Her husband doesn't want to give her light. Because if her husband is going to illuminate and give her an ashpah, what, who's going to take it? What's the point of giving it to her if she's going to go to the chitzonim? It's one of the reasons why a man is not allowed to have relations with his wife during the time of menstruation. During a, because during that time, we spoke about a whole shir about it. Because that's the time that the yenikas hachitzonim, the blood represents the yenika of the unholy, is deriving from the shechin. So to go give a ashpah, to give an influence to her then, and then it will be taken by the forces of unholiness. That would be terrible. That would be devastating. So when we get rid of chametz, hear this. When we get rid of, when we the Jewish people before Pesach. Since Pesach is the time when koil doidi doifik, when God is coming down. To be intimate with every single Jew. To illuminate our souls with His infinite light. To bond with each and every one of us and prepare for the ultimate union, which is the giving of the Torah on Shavuos. But when God comes to pluck us out of all darkness and have this deep connection with us, we need to get rid of on all levels. We spoke about first pure arrogance, then even the subtlety of I, because we can't open ourselves up to God if we're trying to be there as I understand. Get rid of that. And on a much deeper level, 
the ridding of the of of the of the chametz is the ridding of all all yeshus that there is in the cosmos to allow the world to be completely open for a receiving of light, and there should not, God forbid, be a ches, which is chametz, which is the difference between chametz and matz. This is the idea. When we get rid of chametz, what we're really doing is we're cleaning all the chitzonim, we're sweeping out all the powers of darkness from the world. We're literally eliminating. You cleaning your house is having a huge impact in, in, the, in, in, the, in all worlds, cutting off the supply line of energy to the forces of unholiness and sweeping them out. It says before the sin of, Gan, of Adam Arishun, before the sin during the Chait, during Gan Eden, before Adam sinned, there were four worlds. The world of Atzilut is the world of pure godliness. And then there is the world of Bria, Yetzira, and Asiya. All three worlds were totally in holiness, totally in Kedusha. The fourth world, now, and even our world was only holy. Where were the demonic forces? Where was negativity? They were below this world. They were not in this world. They had a residence, God created them. The snake, the serpent had a residence below this world, not here. When Chava ate from the tree of knowledge, she invited the serpent and his entire, his entire um, all of his followers, so to speak, into our creation to pollute the creation and all this mixed together. Every year when we search for chametz and we get rid of chametz and we're doing beer chametz, we're pushing the klipas back down out of our out of our world and eliminating them. Because again, where there is no ego and there is no I, God is. And where God is, where God is, the unholy cannot stand and face, cannot look in God's eye, God forbid, and the, they can't exist in the presence of God. So they fall down lower. It's an amazing idea of understanding what it means cleaning the chametz. By the way, so in some way, it says that bedikas chametz, using the word bedika, bedikas chametz, the cleansing bedikas, an amazing idea which I came across last year, and I came across it again now, when I was preparing for this year. The idea of bedikas chametz is the same idea that a woman does a purification on herself to make sure that there isn't any trace of blood before she can have a union with her husband. Because why, as we said earlier, because if there's any bit of some blood, then that would cause the other side to nourish from her energy, to drain her energy into the wrong places. So bedika, this is the same way we are God's wife. When we're cleaning our homes on before Pesach, we're all doing that bedika, that cleansing, so that our souls can experience on Pesach the ultimate union with God, which happens on Pesach. So this is a deep, this, is, this gives a, a, a soul, a life to the cleaning for chametz. When we know that and we understand that, then we can do it joyfully. Not in a way that's a burden. It's not a burden. It's, it's so amazing. It's a cleansing of ourselves. It's a cleansing of the world. The previous, I began with a story and I'll conclude with a story. The fourth Chabad Rebbe, Reb Shmuel, known as the Rebbe Marash, once related, he was in Marinbad, which was a place that, I guess he went for health. There were a special um, mineral water over there that he needed for his health. On his way back, he passed through Warsaw and he came to the city of Bardichev on the way back to his town, to Lubavitch. When he, was, he came to Bardichev and he was excited to go to Bardichev because he wanted to go to the gravesite of the Holy Levi Yitzchak of Bardichev. 
Um, he came in the early morning, he went to the hotel, then he went to the to Rebbe Yitzhak Barditch of his grave, and he davened. After that, he had time until his train was, would continue. So he came into the city, and he went to visit the various different uh, Hasidic Shtiblach. There were Hasidic shuls from different Hasidim. And he wanted to see what the city, how, what's going on in Barditchev. And he went from shul to shul, and he was very, very impressed with the level of learning and fervor, Hasidic fervor that were in all these shtiblach. It was very beautiful, packed shuls. Some were sitting and telling stories, and they were learning. It was, it was very beautiful. He felt that there was a real, vibrant spirit of Yiddishkeit and Hasidism in the city. These were not his followers. These were from Hasidim of different places. Then he finished and he was ready to go back to his hotel to rest up before he catches the train. On the way back to his hotel, he's walking and he sees a group of, chas- of elderly people. Elderly people walking. They have, they're wearing boots. They're having their, they have their, their, their sleeves rolled up and their, and their pants rolled up. They have boots. And it's in the summer, it's hot, but they're wearing boots. And they're schlepping a heavy barrel of water. And he sees these old men and from the look of them, he sees that they're not water carriers. And he's wondering why they are pulling this heavy, heavy barrel of water. What's going on? And then he sees there is young Hasidim. There's young people from time to time that are coming, walking over and asking if they can take over to pull the barrel. But the elderly people are pushing them away and saying, no, 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 they want to push the barrel. So when they stop to rest, he asked them, we're, we're, what's going on? What are you doing? So they said that we're going to the... No, what happened was no. He watched them, he followed them until they came into a side street. And over there they came to a certain house. And when he got there, he sees there were other people already, elderly Hasidim, people in the house, in the, in, the, in, the, in the building. And he sees everybody scrubbing. They're scrubbing, they're scrubbing the stairs leading up. They're cleaning all the stones outside. And then he sees a whole crew working. Long white beards with payas. And they're on the floor, and they're scrubbing like, like literally like janitors. So he, 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 he asks, what's going on? They said that Tolner Hasidim. Tolner was uh, from the Chernobyl dynasty. The Tolner Rebbe, Rabbi David of Tolner, was a son of the Magad of Chernobyl, was a son of Nachem of Chernobyl. These were real, real big tzaddikim. And the Tolner Rebbe was coming to visit Bardichev, and he was coming to visit his Hasidim that lived in Bardichev. The next day he was coming. They're preparing the shul for their Rebbe. They're so excited that their Rebbe is coming. And that they want the shul to look so beautiful. They're living, not living on them. So he says, listen here. So why do you older Hasidim have to do so? Why don't you let the younger people do it? Shouldn't the older Hasidim educate the young and teach them to be involved in a mitzvah? So the older Hasidim said like this. No. They said, we want to do it ourselves. Because. He says, just in case, we want to have really, really good malachim should stand for us on Rosh Hashanah. We want to have strong, healthy angels that should stand for us, should advocate for us. And, and, and when they saw that he didn't get what they were saying, they said, Rebbe Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev said, again, they were in the city of Bardichev, so they knew Rebbe Levi Yitzhak of Bardichev had said, one time after Tekiah Shaifer, one time Rebbe Levi Yitzhak on Rosh Hashanah, after he blew the shofar, Lifted his hands up, his eyes up to heaven. And he said, He said, Taten Himmel, God in heaven. If the tekiyos, if the blowings of, Levi, of, of Levi Yitzchak ben, Sa, ben Sasha, if the blowings of Levi Yitzchak ben Sasha 
we're, we're, in, we're, not, we're not good. We're, 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 in a sense, we're imperfect. And not done with the right intentions, with the right feelings. So then let, then let the... Now, if you remember, after Tkiah Shefer, we all say a special Yehir Ratzon. Let it be the will. And it says over there that the sounds that were emitted by the shofar should go up, and the angels that are created by these sounds should go up with Nekisek Vaidecha in front of your uh, uh, throne of glory and evoke mercy for the Jewish people. And now, in the sounds of the shofar, we have three sounds Tkiah, Shvarim, Teruah, and then Tkiah again. A simple sound, a broken sound, and a really, really broken sound. And then again, we do a long sound. So if you look in the Siddur, the Tkiah, the way it says over there, is the Malachim that go out. From the kuf, it says it in an abbreviation. From the kuf, the shin, the resh, and the kuf. So Rebbe Yitzchak said, if my tkiah shvarim, shvarim trua tkiah, my kashrak, kashrak is kuf, shin, resh, kuf, was imperfect, then let the scrubbing, the, 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 the malachim that were created by the fervent work that was done by the women and women, that were, especially by the women, who are cleaning wholeheartedly before Pesach, and they kratzen, shoiben, raiben in, in kasherin, which is the three things that people do busy Erev Pesach. Kratzen, it starts with a kuf, same way they like the kia. It's, uh, uh, kratzen means to, to scratch, to scrub. Shoiben uh, um, means uh, also a different form of scrubbing. Raiben means to rub. And kuf means kasherin. As in you, you make things kosher. So it's all difficult labor. So the malachim that, if my tkiyas were not perfect, but this they definitely did with all their energy, because people clean with pay for Pesach with all the energy, these malachim are definitely robust, healthy, strong angels, and let they accomplish what my tkiyas didn't accomplish. So therefore the elderly chassidim said, we don't want to give it to anybody else, we want to do this hard laborous task on our own. And the Rebbe is watching this, the fifth, the fourth Chabad Rebbe, and he had such a delight just seeing this Hasidic fervor and this excitement and this wholeheartedness. The only thing he still said was that had they been Chabad Hasidim, then they would have had the understanding and the knowledge that, they, that the older Hasidim need to have Mesiras Nefesh, they need to have self-sacrifice for the, to educate the younger Hasidim. True, there is the tremendous benefit they would get by doing it themselves. But you're supposed to have self-sacrifice for another Jew. So they should have sacrificed their creating of the malachim to educate the young and teach them how to be chassidim. But in general, he was so happy by seeing this avoda that was done. So I'm just applying that story and we think that when you're schlepping old people, schlepping, oh wait, wait I forgot one thing. He noticed, then he noticed, that they, they, there was a water, a spout, and a water source right next to the house, next to the Tolna Shul. And so he asked them, why do you have to schlep the water from a couple of blocks away when you have water right over here? So they said that Baruch Yassel, he was the wealthy, he's the wealthy chassid, Tolna chassid in town. Baruch Yassel told us that if we don't take water from here, but we use his water, because he has a well for the Rebbe, to scrub the shul and use the water that they need, to, they needed water for whatever, for the, for the first day when the Rebbe comes, it, he is going to sponsor the entire uh, party that they were making in honor of the Rebbe. So that's why they went and they brought the water from far so that Baruch Yassel is going to be the one who's going to sponsor the whole thing and it was worth all the work. 
When one approaches Yantif with this understanding that we're cleaning, because like they had, the Rebbe was coming. In our case, it's God Almighty Himself is coming to be close to each and every one of us. Then the work is done joyfully. The work is done in a beautiful manner. And the last and most important thing is to understand one thing. We can never get rid of the chametz. We cannot do that unless God helps us. So if we think we're going to do it on our own, we're not going to do it anyways. And instead, we ask Hashem to please assist us in what we're doing, that we shouldn't have any chametz in our house on Pesach, and then Hashem helps us. And I wanted to tell another story of the Baal Shem Tov about exactly that, but we don't have time for that today. But the idea was that the Baal Shem Tov was once preparing for Pesach, and he went to get flour, and he worked so hard to get flour, worked so hard. He was shechting because he didn't have any money, and he went out to, and he, this is before he was known, and he was shechting, he did, anyways, he came back with the flour from, a, from, from working for a few days, and he came back with the wagon, and he told his wife that she should get someone to help her bring the flour in, a, 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 a person who was, you know, could carry it in. Meanwhile, he went to a secluded hut to learn. And when the time, and then suddenly a, a downpour of rain came and it ruined all the flour. So his wife came to him and said to him, the flour was ruined. So the Baal Shem Tov said, oi, and he worked so hard for days, everything was ruined. So he went back out, and this time he went to the other village, the other way. And he again was shechting for a few days, until he managed a couple of dollars to buy a couple of, a wagon full of flour. And uh, some, and he was trudging up with the, but this time he was coming up with the, the horse, and the wagon was coming up a hill, and it was a very steep hill. And the horse didn't want to, he couldn't make it up. It was trudging and trudging. The Baal Shem Tov got out and helped pushing it, the wagon from the back. But suddenly the horse just overworked itself. It was, and the horse collapsed and fell down dead. And the Baal Shem Tov was lost standing outside. And he tried to unhook the horse. And he managed with his last bit of strength to unhook it and start pushing the wagon on his own. But he couldn't do it. And, and he had a problem. He couldn't go get help because you're not allowed to leave flour unwatched. He couldn't carry the sack. If he's going to leave it unguarded, it's not going to be kosher anymore. So he felt, so the Baal Shem Tov finally collapsed on the floor and he bitterly starts weeping. And he starts crying that how come, he, no, he's crying, Hashem, please help me. Please help me. And he fell asleep. He's laying on the floor and, and suddenly Elio Anavi appears to him in, a, in his dream while he's laying over there crying on the side of the road. And he says to him that God is going to, that Hashem has accepted your tears and that a peasant is going to come help you take your flower. So the Baal Shem Tov, however, asked Elio Anavi, why is it, if I was willing to sacrifice my life to do the mitzvah and not leave the chametz be unguarded, why did this happen to me? Why, not only did the flower get ruined the first time, but afterwards uh, the horse died. Why did this happen to me? So his wife, so, so the, the, the Eliyahu Anavi said to him, because you did all, you're willing to sacrifice yourself, everything you're willing to do, but you forgot the main thing. You didn't pray to Hashem to help you fulfill the mitzvah. And if you think you're going to do something with God's help, it's, without God's help, it's not going to work. But now that you prayed to, the, to Hashem, so, now you, so when he woke up right away, a, a peasant came riding by and he said to him, Yisrael, do you want to hitch your wagon to mine? So he hitched his wagon and they went up to the house. And he helped him take the, 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 the flower in. And then, the, then he said to him, how much are you going to pay me if I go back to the horse and I skin your horse for you? The dead horse. So he said, I'll give you a silver coin. So he gives him a silver coin. The guy goes back and comes back with the horse's hide. A few minutes later, he takes the horse's hide. There's a knock on the door and there's a, another person there looking to buy a horse's hide. And he gives him, he pays him four gold coins. He paid for it, one silver coin. He gave him four gold coins. And the Baal Shem Tov had all the necessities they needed for Pesach. When you turn to God, miracles happen. We're living in a month of miracles. Miracles happen. If you try to do it yourself and think you're the whole macher and you can do it, you can't do anything. When you turn to Hashem, you could. So these are the secrets to it all. Number one, to know that a, a, a stressful, angry service 
ends us up in the place where the Baal Shem Tov visited the second time. Not in a beautiful, it's not pleasing and it's not delightful for Hashem. Point number two, we realize a little bit pepnemius, what the cosmic effect we have when we're cleaning for chametz and the deep soul preparation that we're preparing ourselves to receive the deepest connection and union with God, then we have the understanding that we can do this mitzvah joyfully and happily, and especially when we take the third idea, and that is that we always have to daven to Hashem that we should be successful in having a true, real, kosher yantif, the way God wants it to do it, then whatever we need, both physically and spiritually, is taken care of by Hashem, and we experience ultimate redemption immediately. Shine.